Romans 8 in your Bible. When we think of the the songs that we sing and the beauty of those words um, that it's easy to sing out. My chains are gone. I've been set free. We'll be talking about that today. How God knew exactly what he was doing for his children while he left us in this world. Because we understand that we don't have to fear death. We know what the cross did for us in our future. But we'll be focusing in Romans chapter 8 on what God did for us in our present. What we have. As the Apostle Paul writes, he's going to be a wonderful blessing to us. Following appropriately Romans chapter 7. Where he talked about that battle that was within him. And how would he deal with that? And then today we're going to see some very, very um, specific instructions as to who we are, which allows us to have victory in this present world. There are some stories that have gained popularity over the years, some stories that have been told again and again. And sometimes uh, a writer or an author will try to put a different twist on a popular story. This happened in 1991 with the story of Peter Pan. Um, Steven Spielberg was a director for a movie based on Peter Pan. The movie was called, some of you might remember it, it was called Hook is what it was called. It starred Robin Williams as Peter Pan. He starts out as Peter Panning, actually. And it stars Dustin Hoffman as Hook, Captain Hook, and Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell. The different twist on this is what they did was, is they imagined if Peter Pan grew up and became a responsible adult, what would that look like? And so in the movie, they have Peter Panning, a responsible businessman, and he had forgotten that he used to be Peter Pan. He was uh, going to visit London where he would see Grammy Wendy, And, of course, in the story, Peter Pan's kids get kidnapped. And as they are taken and as they are kidnapped, Peter Pan has to, or Panning, has to figure out how to get the kids back. And he is standing in the story and he's talking to Grammy Wendy, who knew who he was when he was younger. And Peter Panning says, well, hopefully the police here in London can help us with this. And Grammy Wendy says, the police in London cannot help us. And he says, oh, well, perhaps we should call the authorities in America to help us with this kidnapping. And she says, the police in America cannot help you with this. And then he looks at her kind of confused, and she asks this question. Don't you know who you are? And I think with that question, that would remind him that he was actually the character that would have to go back to Neverland and rescue his kids because he was actually... The Peter Pan. That was the center of the story. And I think the center of the story in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11, I think at the heart of it is that same question. Don't you know who you are? Is the question that Paul will be bringing up, I believe. If you can just remember that question. Don't you know who you are when you're facing temptation? When you're battling fear? When you have this struggle within pulling you one way or the other towards doing right or doing wrong, which Paul has just told us that he struggled with as well, 
If you will remind yourself of who you are, that is going to make all the difference in the world for you. And what we're going to find in Romans chapter 8 today is that Paul lets us know if we are followers of Christ, exactly who you are. Christ's work on the cross not only saved us from the punishment of sin, that's a separation from God in a place called hell, but it saves us from the power of sin. And so what we'll see in these few verses today is a dominating and a controlling influence that is very obvious and directs the life of a believer. We will also, at the same time, see what the dominating influence is in the life of an unbeliever. We find some facts that are going to be stated here. Now, I've already mentioned what a blessing it is for us to be studying in Romans chapter 8. Someone once said that if the Bible is a beautiful ring, then Romans chapter 8 is that lovely jewel, in the top, or Romans, the book of Romans is that lovely jewel in the top of the ring. And if Romans is the jewel on the top of that ring, then Romans chapter 8 is the sparkle on top of that jewel. I'm not sure if you feel this way or not, but here's how I feel about Romans chapter 8. Boy, am I glad for Romans chapter 8. With this battle that Paul has just found himself going through, what a blessing it is that we can now come to this victorious and encouraging chapter. This chapter is so good because it starts out with, for a follower of Christ, there is absolutely, without question, no condemnation. And it's going to end with, there's absolutely, for the follower of Christ, no separation from God. So many themes here in this book, but we're only going only to cover the first 11 verses today in Romans chapter 8. Now, before we jump in there, let me go ahead and point us back to Romans chapter 7. And I don't want you to actually count, but if you even lay your eyes right now on Romans chapter 7, if you've got a Bible available, if you start to look after verse number 13, just for six or seven verses, how many times you will see the words I or me, or my. They're all over the place. The Apostle Paul seems to have some kind of an eye problem going on here as he finishes up with Romans chapter 7. At least 18, maybe 19 times, we find the personal pronoun, I, me, or my, as Paul describes this battle that Christians are facing. And let's go ahead and contrast that with the chapter that we have just now broken into. Because in Romans chapter 8, we don't find those personal pronouns, I, me, and my. But instead, the hero of Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. We find in this chapter, the Holy Spirit mentioned at least 19 times. Now, let me go ahead and remind us, this is not a chapter yet of what we should do, but instead, this is a chapter of who we are. And so, he's going to get to what we should do, I promise. That's pretty common in the Apostle Paul's writings. Some of you can remember in our study in Ephesians, we just laid it out there. The first three chapters are doctrine, telling us who we are, and the last three chapters were duty, telling us what we should do. We're going to get to what you should do. It really begins about in chapter 12 of Romans. But here's how I want us to think of this. 
I think that if these believers receiving this letter at the church in Rome, and even you today, if you were to read Romans chapter 12 and, and see what's expected of us to get along, get along with brothers and sisters in Christ that we have a different opinion with, get along with people who rub us the wrong way, if you were to come to Romans chapter 12 without knowing Romans chapter 8, I think that you and I would say, well, this is impossible. This cannot humanly be done. And you'd be right by saying it cannot humanly be, de- be done. And that's why we have, as the hero of Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to find today, these are facts about you if you're a follower of Christ. And these are also facts about you if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. A couple different groups that we're going to see described in detail. Let's go ahead and read the first three verses of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done away God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When we look at those first three verses, here's the first point that I want us to take away today. We'll cover this one quickly. The first thing that the hero of our chapter does today is the Spirit frees us from sin and from death. When we sang a little bit ago, my chains are gone, I've been set free. That doesn't necessarily point my mind to think about heaven per se, but those chains point me to think about the sin that I would struggle with daily. And the reason that we can never be contemned is because we have been set free from the punishment of sin. But listen, right on the heels of Romans chapter 7, if that resonates with you, the things that you don't want to do, you do. The things that you're doing, you don't want to do. If that resonates with you, then what we understand is we have also been released from the chains of sin. That's what he's saying here. And so this is not necessarily a what can you do, but this is a who you are. It is settled for the follower of Jesus Christ. The authority of sin no longer has dominance in your life. That is a fact. The mastery of sin in a person's life no longer is there. And the power of sin is no longer the dominant power in your life. I like that we're dominated when we look at this passage here. Because everyone in this world is dominated by something. If we want to use his words, we can say dominated by the Spirit or dominated by the flesh. And if you're a follower of Christ today, this tells you. It's not necessarily a choice you have to choose. This is saying you are in the Spirit. That is a fact. Which makes me say, boy, am I glad for Romans chapter 8. And if you're struggling with this idea of thinking that you have to sin, I cannot help but do that. I've been doing that for years. I can't get victory over that. If that is you today, I want to let you know the Apostle Paul is telling you that's not you. You are not defined by sin. You are dominated by the flesh. 
Now next, we're not going to answer the question, don't you know who you are? But in just one half of one verse, we're going to see the answer to the question, don't you know what you can do? We've been discussing the law in the previous chapters. Look with me in the first part of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Hold on. Is he saying we can keep the law? What God has done by allowing us to live in the Spirit and by saving us is God allows us to do good works for the right reason. For the glory of our God. You see, one of the reasons why God saved you is so that you can do what is right. And when we think about doing what is right, sometimes we think of rules, commandments, laws. And those words automatically give us kind of a negative picture when we think of them, just by the title themselves. But for the one who is in the Spirit, you need to think of fulfilling God's law in a different way. You see, for us to obey God, to produce good fruit, to fulfill what He's asked us to do in the Spirit is not a painstaking thing. The rules that God has given should not be something that we despise. In fact, God changes our heart in the fact that when you become a follower of God, you are going to want to be more like God. You're going to want to be Christ-like. And that means you're going to be looking at God's character. It can be helpful for us to think of the law of God in this way. Because laws, you know, the expression laws are made to be broken. We shouldn't be thinking of that when we think of God's laws. And it's helpful if we think of the law of God as this. If we think of it as a holy transcript of God's character. So when you think of God's law, just imagine this is a transcript of God's holy character. And you're not going to despise God's holy character. In fact, if you know him, you're going to love his holy character because that means he is merciful. And that means you have been on the receiving end of his mercy. So don't think of these laws as something to be despised, but instead God changes us and he makes us thirsty for his holiness. If you are a follower of Christ today, God has made you with a thirst to know him better, to obey him better. He's given you a motivation and he's given you an ability. And so if you're struggling, like Paul did in Romans chapter 7, I would ask you, don't you know who you are? Don't you know, daughter of God, son of God? Don't you know who you are? You are in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the desire, and then the Holy Spirit we find here in Romans chapter 8, He energizes us to obey. Gives us the ability to do these things, not for anything for ourselves, nothing self-motivated, but simply for the glory of God, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this is going to be a main difference between believers that practice good things and unbelievers who will practice some things that have a good look to them. We cannot make the argument that people who are not saved don't do some good things sometimes. 
But what we have to do is we have to understand what the motivation is. I'm not saying they have something sneaky up their sleeve, but oftentimes it might be just for self-satisfaction. They might be doing something so that they're pleased because they were honest or they did a good work. It might be for self-preservation. And so there's no doubt that you know people that are not believers and they do some good things sometimes. It comes down to the motivation. The motivation for you and the motivation that is only available to you as a follower of Christ is that you do these things because God has saved you and now you want to glorify Him with your life. Not only is our ability to obey different, but our motivation is different. Let me give an illustration uh, to help explain this further. When a wife is faithful to her husband and a husband is faithful to their wife, the main driving force behind that typically is not because there's a law or a rule saying they have to do that. That's not common with most good marriage relationships. The only reason they're staying faithful is because there's a rule saying they have to be faithful. Now, I will admit that I took a vow before God and witnesses one day to be faithful. And I also study God's word and I see his command to be faithful. But that's not the driving force for why a spouse should be faithful. Let me further illustrate. Let's say that uh, Tina gets the notion in her mind that she wants to write me a note. A note every day. And so she comes and she tells me that. She says, Jeremy, I want to let you know I'm going I'm to write a note just for you. This isn't for anybody else. It's just for you. I want to write this note and fold it and just tuck it away in your pocket. And when you're away from me sometime today, just take out that note and read that and see what it says. Well, I'd probably be thinking I was doing a pretty good job that week as being a husband, right? Wow! Man, a note just for me? This is going to be awesome. What's it going to say? And so let's say we get through the first day and I go and I'm throughout my day and I remember, oh, that's right. I've got that note from my wife. And let's say I take it out of my pocket and I open it up and I read it. And that note from Tina says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Just like that. Now, I get it. Is she right? Yeah. Yep, she's right. Got the verses there in Exodus 20 to prove it. Having said that, is that the kind of love note that I am looking for? No. I don't want her to have to tell me the rules. Why is it that I am going to be faithful to my wife? It is because I love her. And if you've been in a relationship, you can understand this. The reason why you want to do that, to be faithful, become more like them, whatever it might be, with our relationship with God, be more like God's holy character. The reason you want to do it is not because thou shalt. It's because you love him. And a wonderful takeaway for us, I'm going to give you an early takeaway. If you're taking notes, write this down. We always end by giving you some things you can do. Here's one thing right in the middle that you can do. This is why it is so important for you in your walk in this present world to be daily resting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You need to be, listen to every word that I say, daily resting in the work of Christ on the cross. We must be doing that. 
And if we are doing that, we will understand that it is not because I am afraid God's going to strike me with lightning or because there's going to be some kind of a terrible consequence. That is not what is driving me to do the things that I do. If I am in the Spirit, I am going to be driven to do these things out of my love for God, daily understanding that God gave His Son as a sacrifice for me. Daily remembering that Jesus Christ said, not my will but thine be done. And he went to the cross and bore my sins in that horrible crucifixion. Daily thanking God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that gives me power. We must do this daily and this will drive us in our walk with him. And so when we look at God and what he has done, it is important for us to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. A few practical ways that you can do this. Obviously, you can do this through prayer. If you're not sure how to start your prayers, let me encourage you. Thank God for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross right off the bat. Dear God, thank you that you hear my words today because of what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you that even though I face these stresses and these troubles today, I don't have to live in those stresses and struggles because of the work of Christ on the cross. Daily live in the work of Christ on the cross. Also, you can practice this um, through the Word of God. Make it a regular time that you're looking at the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's been said that there is a scarlet thread that runs through every part of the Bible, and that scarlet thread is the work of Jesus. And that's a beautiful way for us to live. And then if you're like me, you can also do this through song. Maybe before you get into God's Word or before you pray, you want to sing a song. Uh, For me, I've got a little device and I I press a button and it sings a song for me. In fact, they're just great singers and I can choose several ones. Allow yourself to be reminded of the the work of Christ on the cross every day. And as you're doing it, you might say to yourself, boy, am I glad for Romans chapter 8. All right, let's go ahead and look at the last thing here. Uh, In the last section, which is verses 5 through 11, so it's the biggest part we're going to cover, what we see is two kinds of people. Now, if you still want to make the argument that Paul is telling us to do something here, and you might see the word set set your mind, so this is something to do, let me go ahead and ask you to, to read this portion with this in mind. As we read these verses, Paul is describing two different kinds of people. And so you need to tell yourself, am I that kind of person or am I that kind of person? He's going to describe the ones that are in the flesh and the ones that are in the spirit. So let me go ahead and read verses 5 through 11. And you decide if this is a fact or if this is a choice. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, 
although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me just point out the second word in verse number five and the first word in verse number nine for the two groups. Paul says in verse number five, for those who live according to the flesh, and then he changes tone in verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh. The spirit is something that we are seeing here that God is working with for us to have daily victory. And what we find here, for those of you who are taking notes, is the Spirit changes our nature. The third point is the Spirit changes our nature. And so only two kinds of people in this world. There are the saints and there are the ain'ts. All right? So if you're a child of God today, you're a saint. And if you're not, then you ain't. That's all there is to it. Look in verse number six of Romans 8 just for some more confirmation about this. Verse number six does not say to set the mind on the flesh leads to death. It states it as a fact. Those who have their mind set on the flesh, it says, is death. It does not say those who set their mind on the spirit, this will lead to life. It says to set the mind on the spirit, or as I'm saying it, those who have their mind set, it doesn't say leads to life, it says is life. And so people who are set in the flesh, this is a good way for, to understand folks who don't have Christ. They simply have an absence of God in their life. They simply have an inability to do anything that pleases or honors God in their life. They cannot respond to Him. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are set in the Spirit, settled. It's like a mold that you have put, 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 been put into. But let's get practical. Some of you will say, but I still struggle. Yes, I'm in the Spirit, but I still have conflict. And the conflict within is actually generated by this difference because you've been made something. When you became a follower of Christ, you have been made something in this present world that conflicts with this present world. You live in a world that is dominated by sin. And that's why when you have a newness of life, there is going to be a struggle. And if I can just use the word flesh, we see here very clearly in these 11 verses that if you're a follower of God, you are not in the flesh. But if I can take you back to chapter 7 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul says that the flesh is still in me in part. Nothing good is done in my flesh, he says. So as long as we are in this, present, in this present world, there will still be a struggle. And if you're struggling today, I want to ask you the question. Don't you know who you are? Look at what Paul is saying about you. Don't you know who you are? A child of the risen King, our God who made all things our God who has all power, and our God who has good planned for you is on your side. And that is who holds you in His hand on this day. People who are set in the flesh, they need a Savior. They need Jesus Christ. Fact, we are not in the flesh 
even though we still can choose to disobey, we're not dominated by that. Let me use this illustration. Um, some of you maybe swam in a pool uh, recently or when you were a kid that was a round pool. Most of the pools that I've swam in were round pools that were at somebody's house. There's a great trick you can do when you're swimming in uh, a round pool like that. If you've got two or maybe three or four people, what you can do in that pool is you can get on the outsides and space out and start to walk in a circle to get that water moving with you. And if you're going and you're walking in a circle around that pool and you're pushing the water, pretty soon there's going to be a current that is, sw- that is swirling and is going in that pool to the point where if you try to stop, you're going to almost lose your footing. There's this current that is pulling you along. For the child of God, if you have newness of life, you are set in the Spirit, what is happening is when you choose to sin, that is not the norm for you. When you choose to sin as a believer, what you're doing is you're jumping out and you're trying to swim against that current. And it feels wrong. And it wears you out. And you're miserable doing that. Because God has placed something new in you. And yet he's left us in this world that is dominated by sin. Don't you know who you are? Allow yourself to understand that God wants you moving in this way. And the difference between the one that is dominated by the flesh, the unbeliever, and the one that's dominated by the spirit, the believer, is when the one who is a follower of Christ sins... There is big resentment for that. I understand when I did that, that I've disappointed my father. I understand that when I committed that sin, it was that very sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why he suffered and bled and died. And so even though you might choose to sin, the difference is we, as followers of God, we resent it. God loves us too much to allow us to live in a backslidden state where He is not doing what He can to bring us back to Himself. Remember that. He loves you too much to let you be far away from Him. I... uh, Michael Jack used to use a story. I'm not sure how theologically correct it is, but it resonates with this point that I'm making right here. When someone gets away from Christ, gets away from that close walk with Christ, Michael Jack would oftentimes say that if you get a little bit far away from Christ, when he's going to go ahead and correct you, he really can't get a very big swing when he's going to correct you. But if you get far away from Christ, you better watch out. He loves you so much, he's going to get that arm swinging, and he's going to pop you one because he wants to bring you back to himself. The difference when someone who's a child of God sins is they will have remorse. When the believer sins, he is actually working against his new nature. And so the Holy Spirit places within us the right attitude, the right attitude, patience, kindness, gentleness. Those are all things that God's going to place within us when we become saved. We have to work at them. But he also gives us the ability to act upon those. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
Many, many years ago, there were two Germans that had a dream. They wanted to climb this specific summit in the Swiss Alps. It was the Matterhorn. Anybody here familiar with the Matterhorn in the Swiss Alps? Some of you have heard of that. It's a famous summit that's over there. It's beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. These two Germans were very intent on climbing this, and they wanted to survive this death uh, this uh, life-threatening climb. And so what they did was these two guys actually, they hired three guides to take them up the cliff. Three guides. And as they were going, they put one guide in the front and then one of the tourists in the middle and then a guide in, uh, next and then a guide in the middle and then a tourist and then on the outside end, another of the guides. Three guides and then two tourists in the middle. When they got to a particularly dangerous part of the trek up the Matterhorn, what they decided to do was to tether themselves to each other to help. And so that's what they did. They tied themselves to each other, and they started to go up this very dangerous spot. And as they went up the trek, the one that was in the very rear lost his footing. He slipped and he fell. And because of the force that he fell with, the next one who was fourth in line wasn't able to hold himself up and he fell. And now there's two pulling. And so there was a third one and the third one came down also. And then the tourist who had paid money for this trip was second in line and because there were three guys pulling on him, he lost his footing as well. And can you guess what happened to the guy who was first in line? You might not be able to. Because the guy who was first in line, even though he had four people pulling him down, he was able to hold his place. And the reason why he did not fall was because he took a stake and he drove it deep into the ground when they were going up this dangerous spot and he was fixed to that stake long enough for those that had fallen to regain their footing. He was able to stand there and stand strong because that was the, there was strength in that thing that he was holding on to. And today I would ask you, don't you know who you are? You are bound to a Christ who one day 2,000 years ago allowed a cross to be put into the ground. And we are bound to that Lord and Savior. And nothing will ever be able to pull him down from where he stands. And if you are a follower of God, that is the connection that you have. That is who you are. This is a person who you are. And that is why the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, I struggle. But when he gets to Romans chapter 12, and he tells them what they should do, here's why you can have victory. You don't have to continue to struggle in sin. You don't have to continue to fight. You can have victory. God has made that possible. When we think of cars today, all cars typically today that are driven are driven with a a principle called the storage principle. When we think of the storage principle, we're talking about fuel that gets put into the car. It's stored there and it runs until the fuel runs out. Even if you drive an electric car, there's a storing of electricity and it runs until that electricity runs down. So a storage principle is what we find in just about all cars today. Now there's a different kind of car that I enjoy more than the car that I have and more than the car that you have. And they are bumper cars. How many of you remember the bumper cars from the good old days, right? 
Bumper cars do not work on the storage principle. But instead, bumper cars, they work on the contact principle. Part of the fun of seeing the bumper cars is seeing that electricity. Remember that? That electricity up top, the sparks that are going as you go and you try to slam into somebody really hard and have fun in the bumper cars. So the bumper cars work by that contact. There has to be that contact there or else they'll have no power. Our car today works by a storage principle. There has to be fuel, has to be electricity, or else there will be no power. All right. Here's the takeaway for us, and here's the application from, those, from that picture. Which, which one of those does the Christian live by today? The storage principle or the contact principle? Well, it's a trick question because the answer is both. We live by both. We live by the contact principle, which is what we're finding out in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And if you're a follower of God today, God took you in his hand, and there is no power, no strength, no anything that can take you out of the Father's hand. There's always that contact. Boy, am I glad for Romans chapter 8. Remind yourself of that contact and nothing can take it away. But then very practically, there is the storage principle, which is going to come as we feed on God's word, as we serve others, as we produce the fruits of the spirit. These are things that are going to help us go along in our journey. And it will give us wonderful power to go through our life, to go through this world, so that people who are around, who might be doing some good things, but when they see that you don't stop doing those good things because you're going to miss out on maybe what they thought was coming to you. They're trying to figure out why you live the life that you live. And we are able to live in a way where God is honored and God is glorified. And we will look at Romans chapter 8 and we will understand who we are because you are changed. You are redeemed. Bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason that we will not have condemnation, that we will never have separation, and why we can have victory for every battle that we will face in this present world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look to you, we thank you that your power is enough to save us. We thank you that your plan included my name and the name of all those who would call out for salvation. And there's no limit. We praise you that salvation is available to all men and all women. We thank you for your patience and for your mercy. Would you allow us, Lord, to be looking at your character, seeing exactly what that character is so that we can be like that not resenting that we have to act a certain way, but blessed that we can be more like you so that you are glorified and honored. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, in just a moment the piano is going to play and we're going to give you a chance to pray. A couple different categories that we'd like to ask you to pray about. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you can, even where you are sitting, call out to God for forgiveness and salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and if you will just ask him to forgive you and to make you his child, he'll make you his daughter or his son. It's as simple as that. All you have to do 
is ask and he'll forgive you. And then if you're here today and you're still living in Romans chapter 7, you've kind of stopped and said, well, Paul had those struggles and so I'm going to have them too. I want to encourage you to pray about what you might struggle with and then turn the page to Romans chapter 8 because God has made a way for you to have victory. You can choose to not obey, but that's not your default setting. Let me encourage you, even if you're struggling, understand that there is a direction, there is a current that is flowing. Allow yourself to naturally be going after God and don't try to fight against Him. It is His way. It is His plan for you that's going to give you joy and peace. Take just a moment to pray this morning.